family, church, and state. I'd like to begin by saying the postmodern world has diluted God's holy ordinances, both the creational ordinances and redemptive ordinances. Now, because of that, it would be a mistake to look at the basic human institutions as they now stand as allies in our battle. For example, simply trying to marshal today's families in their present condition in order to press the kingdom of God or the gospel might be counterproductive inasmuch as the redefined family is a part of the very problem we're trying to overcome. Now the same is often true of the church and the state. A.W. Tozer once uh, said that the revival of the church as it stands today would be harmful if it simply produces a greater quantity of the kind of Christianity we have today. (laughs) That's why he says the church doesn't need revival first, it needs reformation. And then let's revive it. Let's revive the Reformation. Similarly, for Christians to capture the state, when the state has grown so large as to intrude into all of life, shouldn't be our main objective. Big Christian government is oxymoronic. So our first course of action has to be to understand God's design for these institutions and to restore them to that God-intended status. Um, In the late uh, 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a group of reformational thinkers that some of you may have heard of. Abraham Kuyper, Herman Bovink, Herman Duyverd. Have any of you heard of these people? Read some of their books? Okay. They uh, addressed the issue of the relationship between principal human institutions by setting forth a Protestant principle that they like to call sphere sovereignty. Now, that view was also implied earlier in Protestantism, but they really gave it a concrete expression, elaborated on it. And Dewey Weird put it this way. This is a quote. I don't use a lot of quotes. They tend to be boring. But I'll give you this one quote. He says this, Rooted in the Christian view that no single societal sphere can embrace our whole life, sphere sovereignty implies that each sphere of society has a God-given task and competence which are limited by the sphere's own intrinsic nature. These limited spheres of power ought to respect each other in their mutual relationships. Close quote. Last quote. (coughs) This essentially means that God mediates his sovereignty by dividing it. Now let's think about that for a minute. God alone is sovereign. Many, many years ago I heard a minister make the sort of half-joking quip. What does that mean, that God is sovereign? And he said, it means that God is God. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of truth in that. God is the ruler. God is omnicompetent, all-knowing. He is the king. He is the true sovereign, which is to say that his will, in one way or another, is accomplished. But in doling out how things occur on this earth, he does sort of vest aspects in a subordinate way of his sovereignty to various spheres. No single individual other than Jesus Christ and no single human sphere or institution can monopolize this authority, this mediated authority. 
So we would say God created a balance <coughs> of powers, a checks and balances system. It's sort of akin to the evolving English uh, parliamentary system that began with the Magna Carta. It really did. That's a pretty good example of what I'm talking about. King John was obliged to share authority with the nobles and later the crown with Parliament and the United States. We similarly have the executive and the legislative and judicial branches. And we got this from England, of course. And England essentially got it from the Word of God. Did you like flattering your audience? It's just really great to come over here. But the word sovereignty implies something else. Each sphere is sovereign in relation to the other spheres. No one sphere can lord it over these other spheres of life. They're independent, but ideally interrelated. Now, society, these reformational thinkers said, was filled with spheres. Education is its own sphere, and technology, and science, sports, business, the arts... Each of them has its own, they would say, intrinsic, inherent reason for being. Its own inherent rules for being. And its own government. But the three principal explicitly God-ordained spheres that I want to mention today are the family, the state, and the church. The family, the state, and the church. Each one has its own unique calling and jurisdiction, and responsibility, and limitations. Let's talk about the family first. And again, I'm going to say things that you might not hear anywhere else. Whether that's good or bad, take that as it may. Uh, I'm going to take the family first because it appeared first historically, and it is the most important of those spheres. The family's more important than the state or even the church. And I'll tell you why. Uh, of all human institutions, the family is unique in that it is not a concession to the fall. The family is not a concession to the fall. Had Adam and Eve never sinned, there never would have been a church or a state, at least not as we know them today. But there certainly would still have been a family, correct? Well, of course, and many families. God created the man, and from his side he created the woman, both equally in his image. And he told them to reproduce, thus generating other divine image bearers. Now I'm going to ask a question that we often don't consider. It's important that we ask basic questions sometimes. We just sort of take words for granted. We need to ask basic questions about creational categories. What makes this institution of the family so unique? Uh, Chiefly, it is the only sphere that is bound by intimate physical union. Remember we talked in the last session about uh, generating children and populating the earth and adoption and so on? Make no mistake about it, the most distinctive aspect of marriage isn't friendship or loyalty or even love. Other relationships have those. Those spouses should be loyal, should be friends, and should love one another as no other individuals love one another. That's for sure. Sexual intercourse, however, is the most intimate human act. The sexual revolutionaries in the Playboys sometimes chide us Christians about being prudish about sex. All to the contrary. We know how momentous sex is, and that's why we treat it with utmost seriousness. You see, we Christians, if you understand the Bible, far from thinking sex is secondary, we think it's very important. 
That's why we don't joke about it. We don't trivialize it. Precisely because it's so central. Never downplay or be ashamed of that physical aspect of marriage. I mean, what did Adam say when he first saw Eve? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He didn't just mean that God had taken her from his own body. And think about that. Isn't that, even the symbolism of that is so beautiful and so powerful. Do you think about that? Both ladies and men, how powerful that is. God created Adam from the dust of the ground, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and says, this is now a living being. And then he doesn't go say, okay, now I'm going to make another one and start again out of the dust of the ground. He doesn't say that. This is how close this woman should be to this man. He meant that he and she would share their very bodies with one another. Ephesians 5 is quite clear about that, by the way. And doing this, they created other bodies, people or children. This physical intimacy creates spiritual, emotional, and psychological intimacy. By the way, this fact reveals one of the great profanations of the sexual revolution. And the sexual revolution, by the way, and we're living in it today, is profane. God has not created us so that we can decontextualize sex. Sex isn't simply the joining of one body with another. It's the joining of one heart and one mind and one life with another. And that's why it must be reserved for marriage. Joined bodies are more than joined bodies. They are joined lives. And that is what's so utterly evil about the hookup culture. Our bodies are not just commodities that can be decontextualized from the rest of us. By the way, this truth helps explain authority within this sphere. Those who give birth to us exercise authority over us. While we're children, we came from their very bodies. So God vests them with authority to direct our lives until we're ready to start our own family. The jurisdiction of the family is the most important jurisdiction on the earth. The family doesn't have jurisdiction over the church or the state or other spheres, but that doesn't diminish its importance. Of course, you've heard the aphorism, have you not? The old, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. That's essentially true. No institution can possibly wield greater influence in society than the family, given its blood-anchored roots. The family has blood-anchored roots. If we're interested in reshaping society for the Christian truth, our chief concern must be the family. And that's why Christian concern is so correct to stress so many of these family issues, because it is the basic foundational uh, sphere of society. Some of you have read the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels. It declares plainly, in part two, the, quote, abolition of the family is one of its objectives. It tried and tries today, Marxism, communism, and North Korea, for example, today, to break the family bonds in order to create an unbreakable bond between the individual and the state without this mediating institution of the family. That's a Herculean task, so tight are the blood bonds of the family. Extremely tight. The family is the first divinely established sphere mediating God's authority and the most foundational. But let me move on quickly to the state, what we would call politics. Our forefathers sometimes called it the civil magistrate, the civil magistrate. We don't use that expression much anymore. It has almost a a slightly religious whiff to it. And our secular society is not quite committed to it. God established the state, first of all, in Genesis 9 with the penalty of capital punishment for murder. The only physical sanction that the family can impose is limited corporal punishment for minor children. 
The father is not authorized by the Bible to execute his children as the father in the pagan ancient clan often did. The state is God's exclusive arm of physical coercion. That's important to understand. And that's very plain from Romans chapter 13. The role of the state is to sanction external evildoers for specific sins that we know as crimes. Now understand that most sins are not crimes in the Bible. That's a very important distinction, is it not? You can do all sorts of bad things and the state shouldn't get involved. Other spheres can, but not the state. In the language of Romans 13, the state wields the sword, the sword, against those who violate duly established external moral law. It's not given to the state to read the intents of men's hearts. So the state can't punish covetousness or lust or hatred. It can, however, and must punish theft and kidnapping and murder, for example. Certain specifically outlined external violations of God's moral law. Now, unlike the family and the church, the state in the Bible actually has a purely negative function. Now, that's an important point to understand. Now, we can say the state has a positive function in that it protects law-abiding citizens, but how does it do that? By threatening law-breaking citizens. So, really, it goes back immediately to its negative function. Now, because the state employs a legitimate monopoly on physical coercion, its jurisdiction must be extremely limited. In the Bible, the state is to punish specific external violations of God's moral law. This is explicit in ancient Israel and implicit in the New Testament. Now, it's an interesting point. Some of you remember when Paul was incarcerated once. He made the interesting observation when he was on trial, and I'm quoting here from Acts 25. Paul says, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. Oh, sidebar, Paul did believe in the legitimacy of capital punishment. He goes on, But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Notice that Paul was very happy to work within the present judicial system. Now, Paul was acknowledging not merely the validity of the death penalty, but also that the state alone could impose it. The Bible doesn't envision the role of the state as creating, for example, an economically just society. I know I'm not sort of some pure libertarian. I'm not saying the state can never get involved in the economy. It certainly can. It must guarantee just weights and measures, the Bible says, suppress fraud and theft and robbery. It can impose taxes for matters like raising a military and services that can't be done effectively in a private way. We would say like perhaps law enforcement, firefighting, and so on. But to create the perfect economically just society, the Bible doesn't say, is within the province or sphere of the state. Now, the state in our time has commandeered the tasks of health and welfare and medicine and education and others that God's designed mostly, though not exclusively, for the family. The state has become something of a monstrosity. Have you noticed that? It's developed messianic aspirations. Have you ever noticed, though, that whenever a crisis or calamity erupts, people just clamor, well, what's the government going to do about this? Some terrible thing has happened. What's the government going to do about it? They almost never say, well, what's the family and church going to do about it? That's sort of a dead giveaway, is it not? That individuals have ceded so much authority to the state rather than to other institutions. 
That, by the way, shows why we have to be careful not to lay all of the blame on politicians. Historically, the family and the church have both ceded gradually authority that they have. They have given it over slowly to the state. Fact is, most modern people are irresponsible and they prefer a large and burdensome state and they'll surrender their political liberty and their religious liberty if it means they don't have to be responsible for health care and elderly care and education. It's a good case that we have met the enemy and he is us. Now, the state's not designed to make people good, but to punish those who commit specific external evil acts. It's to keep external peace in society. We get a hint of this when Paul instructs Timothy, and I listen to this in 1 Timothy 2.2, because I'm going to refute a common um, idea heard among a number of Christians that Jonathan and I were talking about. He says, pray for the civil magistrate, quote, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, close quote. Now that's the role of the state, to keep things externally tranquil and quiet so that individuals and families and churches and other spheres can live their lives freely before God. And now that statement also refutes this um, pious gush, that's what we'll call it, pious gush, that we sometimes hear that Christians should pray for persecution. Let us pray for persecution because the church thrives under persecution, but it withers under liberty. Doesn't that sound so pious? The church has sometimes thrived under persecution and sometimes it's been crushed under persecution. The church in North Korea today is not thriving under persecution. And in most ironclad, tyrannical regimes, it does not thrive under persecution most of the time. The church did not thrive under persecution in Maoist China. It is thriving much more in today's China, which still has crimps on religious liberty, though much more religious liberty than there was under Mao Zedong. But the fact is the Bible never under any condition requires the church or requests the church to pray for persecution. That's not what Paul said. He says pray for the civil magistrates so that they will essentially stay out of your way, I would say by implication. Protect those who obey the law. Punish those who disobey the law so we can go about our lives freely. Let's pray that the state does a good job keeping, suppressing terrorism so people can go about their daily lives. The church can preach the gospel. People can bring up families. That's what we need to be praying for with respect to the state. Not that the state can create the perfectly beautiful, good, just, equal society. The state has jurisdiction over everyone within its borders. But this jurisdiction, while extensive, should never be intensive. Because the state can wreak such havoc, because it wields the sword, its tasks must be severely limited. Let's just put it this way before we move on to the church. Because the state can do very bad things to you, it should not be permitted to do many things. Everybody understand that? It can do such bad things to you, therefore it should only address very few things. And then third, we have the church. We talked about the family, and then the state, or politics, and then the church. The church is the ecclesia. God's redeemed earthly community. It's the community of those washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, if the family is the community of blood, the church is the community of the blood of Jesus Christ. If the family is a pre-redemptive community, the church most emphatically is a redemptive community. What are the unique tasks of the church? Well, we can't say that the church alone can preach the gospel, for we know that fathers and mothers 
should be preaching the gospel to their children from the youngest age. They're very emphasy, I would even suggest. But there are three specific tasks given to the church that are not committed to any other sphere. And this is what makes the church unique. First, the church alone articulates structured divine truth within history. That's another way of saying the church is the custodian of orthodoxy. The church alone doesn't preach the gospel, but the church alone describes and declares the limits of the gospel. The church doesn't originate the truth, but the church is, according to Paul, the pillar and ground of truth. The family and state aren't charged with preserving the Apostles' Creed or the 39 Articles or the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession. That's the responsibility of the church. Second, the church holds a monopoly on the sacraments or the ordinances, as some churches call them. Now, as Protestants, we believe that there are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These aren't given to the family or the state. The church, under authority of its duly charged elders, administers both baptism, and baptism is the initiatory right into the church. That's how one formally enters the church. And the continuing right of the church, which is communion. That's the continuing principal right of the church. And then third, and finally, the church holds a monopoly on what's been called the keys of the kingdom. That's the language of, that Jesus gave to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. That is, who is to be considered within and without the pale of Christianity? Jesus is quite clear about this. A father and mother may disinherit a child, but they can't expel a child from the faith. Only the church can do that validly. The church communicates the external limits of Christianity within history. The only discipline the church is permitted to impose is spiritual discipline called excommunication. The church may not wield the power of the sword. Only the state can do that. Do you see how each of these has its own separate jurisdiction, its own separate unique authority? Now, the church exercises jurisdiction over everybody within its number, all who have been baptized, all who partake of communion. The church doesn't have any jurisdiction just generally over everybody within a nation's borders, as the state does. The church doesn't have jurisdiction within the family, as, for example, a father or mother does. It has only jurisdiction over a family in spiritual matters relating to its mission. Now let's get to a couple of real vital issues. Let's think through some of the thorny questions related to these interrelationships between these spheres of family and state and church, because that really is where the rub comes, when these two kind of step on each other's authority, right? Now, no sphere, according to the Bible, is permitted to step outside its own jurisdiction. The family may never become the state, The family may never become the state. Now, if that sounds very odd and foreign to us today, and it certainly does in our world, this did occur all the time in the ancient world. Societies that worship ancestors or patriarchal societies give the house father the power of life and death over his children and servants. That really happened in ancient Rome, as most of you know. Daughters weren't very desirable. So if a wife gave a the head of the household, a daughter, and he didn't want a daughter, he could just throw her out in the street. Of course, that's contra-biblical. And the Church of Jesus Christ and Christianity worked for its abolition and did abolish that practice. Nor may the family be the church. There's, now, make it, let's make it clear, there's no problem with house churches. The very first churches did meet in homes. 
But a father is not the pastor of his family, while the mother is the assistant pastor and the children are the members. There's no such thing in that sense as a family church. Now, several families may meet in a house to launch a church, but no single family or extended family is a church. Fathers are not, ipso facto, church leaders. Now, the state may not be the family. Let's think about that profanation for a minute. That certainly happened in some blood and soil fascist regimes like Hitler's Germany, Mussolini's Italy, the Führer, excuse me, Führer, who becomes a Führer, becomes the father, and the authority of fathers and mothers is subordinated to him. Everyone in society has a direct, unmediated relationship to this political figure. It's actually similar, by the way, in Marxist societies, despite their professed hatred for fascism. Instead of a Führer, there is the party. The objective of the party is to lose or destroy family bonds. So that individuals submit to the state and the state becomes strong. The state becomes the family, and of course that's tyranny. Now, let's take another example of mistaken and overwrought jurisdiction. The state may not commandeer the tasks and jurisdiction of other spheres. The state may not become the church. That's one of the most dangerous developments in history, when the state attempts to become the church. The state sees itself as the religious savior. I don't know how many of you have read the book Charles Norris Cochran's Christianity and Classical Culture. What an amazing book. Christianity and Classical Culture. He points out that the Roman Emperor Augustus, like many other ancient rulers, was thought to be a deity. And uh, particularly in the Roman Empire, he had a propagandistic coin struck. That's because there were no newspapers. That was a means of ancient propaganda by a lot of the rulers. Their currencies, they would stamp their image on currencies with little propaganda messages as people would see them oh this king or emperor must be very important he has the power to do this to the currency and that's sort of how part of his power was was communicated one of those coins and this is what Ethelbert Stauffer pointed out in Christ and the Caesars this coin by Augustus it has been found by the way a number of them declared that are you ready for this salvation is to be found in no other name than Augustus and there is no other name given to men in which they must be saved does that sound familiar That's Acts 4.12. And now you know why the early church countered Augustus with this statement. And there is no salvation and no one else but Jesus Christ. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It was a counter-imperial claim of a state that was trying to be the church. We live in times of messianic politics, proposing that all of man's ills can be cured by the state. That is a recipe for tyranny, for disaster and idolatry. The world has seen it many, many times. Many, many times. Salvation is found in one place alone, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the state, even in a very good state. A little sidebar here. Do you understand the principal reason that Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire in the ancient world? It was not because they preached in Jesus Christ as a savior. Do you understand that? There were all sorts of other religions at the time that preached and taught that salvation was in particular gods or particular individuals. What was it that was unique about Christianity that caused that called forth the persecution, in some cases intense 
fiery persecution of the Roman Empire. What was it that was unique about Christianity? Does anybody know? What's that? Exactly. That Jesus Christ is Lord, and he alone is Lord. And though we are not lawbreakers, Caesar is not fundamentally Lord. Jesus Christ alone is Lord, and his salvation is in him and in no other. You see, ancient, ancient Rome was polytheistic, relativistic, largely, and multicultural. <laughs> Very multicultural. Remember how large the Roman Empire was? They would conquer other peoples and assimilate them and say, oh, you can keep all your gods. Oh, by the way, bring us a couple of statues and let them put... We, we, we collect. That's what they would do. They would often collect some of the statues of the gods of the people whom they overthrew because, you know, this shows how great we are. We have gods here from 17 different tribes and nations. Come look at all of the gods that we've commandeered and taken. And Christians would say, no, we don't have anything to give you. We don't have any physical thing to give you. We serve the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, and we will bow down to no God and to no ruler at all. That's why Christians were persecuted. Not because they believed that Jesus would save them. That's why, as Andrews pointed out, the real fundamental issue is the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the issue. A second issue, and this is the last main thing I'm talking about, is particularly urgent, and that is the question of the relation of church and state, and specifically, what should the church, and particularly pastors, do about politics? You know, it's really interesting to observe the massive historical shift on this issue. Uh, I own a number of volumes by the great British Congregationalist that many of you have know of and have read John Owen. You know about John Owen. What a powerful man of God he was. One of those volumes is titled, it's really neat, Sermons to the Nation. Sermons to the Nation. An entire volume of sermons on 17th century British political topics, what's going on at the time. Now, many Christians today would declare this, in fact, is the problem. <laughs> they would say about John Owen, oh, he was a nice man, and he understood justification, and he understood the Trinity, but boy, he was so wrong when he was preaching about the moral law of God and the nation. Isn't that arrogant? He's so right about everything else, but so wrong, and that he's preaching to the nation. And, of course, folks that believe this today are glad that this rarely happens anymore. The church, they say, was much too intertwined with the state. This led to unnecessary problems for both. They'll say, well, the church has to be true to its own calling, which is winning souls and sanctifying Christians and training members in the faith. Now, that answer itself poses a big problem, however. If all of the Bible is authoritative, and if we're called to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and if preachers are called to teach us the entire Bible, they have to teach what it says regarding issues relating to politics. Right? Can we avoid the word of God simply because it touches on what we today would term political issues? I mean, this Bible certainly does contain such teaching, explicitly or implicitly, or by anticipation. Abortion, religious liberty homosexuality and same-sex marriage, female egg harvesting, false religion, pornography, economics, uh, Islam, though Islam hadn't risen at the time, the idea of false teachings, bank over-leveraging, hundreds of other issues, hundreds of other issues addressed explicitly or implicitly by the Bible. So for a pastor to avoid preaching politics and those things is really to avoid preaching the entire counsel of God. 
I like to say they have very tiny Bibles. Very tiny Bibles. Um, at the root of this pastoral omission, it really is a diluted view of, the, of man's primal calling. Now, I want you to think about this. And here I am going back to a creational category. Man's vertical calling is to love God with his entire being. And Jesus himself said man's horizontal calling is to love his neighbor as himself. But his calling as a human within creation is to exercise authority and dominion over the rest of creation as God has deputized him. This is called the, remember we talked about it last year, the cultural mandate. Now that's a basic human calling. Many pastors today do a good job encouraging a closer walk with the Lord and getting people to pray and evangelize more, and those are imperative. They tend to be delinquent, however, when it comes to teaching Christians how to extend the kingdom of God. And by the way, the kingdom of God in the Bible, the Basileia, is essentially the reign of God. The kingdom of God is the reign of God. So when we talk about extending or pressing the kingdom, we mean pressing the reign of God. That is, God's authority will be explicitly and implicitly recognized in another sphere or in a greater way. That's all we mean by extending the kingdom of God. And by the way, that's why people are converted, so that they will bow the knee to Jesus Christ and live according to the dictates of his law. That's why the gospel is a kingdom work. Everybody understands that, right? It's not just so people can go to heaven. We're not called to escape the earth, after all, but to subdue it for the Lord's glory. But if pastors don't understand that fact, they won't understand their calling to support and be involved in things and organizations like Christian Concern. I'm going to go way out on a limb here way out on a limb, and um, suggest that many pastors, conservative pastors in London, are not beating your doors down in order to support and help you. Now, am I, am I, and I know that's a risky, risky thing to say, and I could be very wrong on that, but I'm thinking I'm probably correct. Am I correct on that point? Okay. See, I suspect that many of them think that the mission statement of Christian concern and its projects are somehow not a part of the gospel or somehow secondary to it as I pointed out last year. But you see, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ incrementally is turning back evil wherever he finds it. Now that includes, let's see if these words sound familiar to you, quote, abortion, adoption and fostering, bioethics, marriage, education, employment, end of life, equality, family, free speech, Islamism, religious freedom, the sex trade, social issues, and issues relating to sexual orientation. Do those, does that string of tasks sound familiar to any of you here? If it doesn't, you haven't been reading your own website lately. Okay. Uh, you see, those issues, turning back those evils, is in fact a part of the gospel. Now, sometimes, of course, you'll detect this attitude among churches and ministers. Well, we really appreciate, you know, Andrea and Christian concern and that they're involved in those things. After all, somebody's got to do them. But they really are secondary, and we ourselves can't be distracted from the really important task, which is preaching the gospel. Well, I would agree that we need to get back to the task of preaching the gospel, but I believe they don't understand the fullness of the gospel. <laughs> Jesus isn't just saving sinners. He's saving everything. He isn't just taking people to heaven. He's subduing creation for his glory. He isn't Lord just of the family and church. He's also Lord of music and theater and education and technology and the economy and politics. 
Now, in practical terms, this means that the pastor is called to preach the Bible, all of it, to speak biblical truth to pressing issues of the times. And that's why pastors should be the ones lauding and supporting this organization and others, CCL and others like it. They should be inviting your staff in to speak and enlisting their members for specific tasks and applying the faith and culture. You understand it's not somehow more spiritual to lead an Awana club than to defend in court a student expelled for keeping a Bible on his or her desk. See, it's not somehow more spiritual. You're not somehow a better Christian if you teach Sunday school than if you teach a group of young adults about their responsibility in voting. You're not somehow more God-pleasing if you go on a short-term mission trip than if you persuade a young woman not to undertake surrogate motherhood or have an abortion. There aren't sort of gradations of gospel teaching and living. You either live in terms of the Bible's comprehensive gospel, or you don't. One of the great scandals of our time is the silence of the pulpits in England and America on these great public issues. The chief obligation of the pastor is not to build the institutional church, if by that we mean Sunday school, increasing Sunday school attendance or erecting more buildings or doubling the budget. The question we have to ask ourselves is to what end? Always be asking that question. To what end? And the answer has to be in what our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount. What are we to seek first? Seek ye first the what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the reign of God. That is always the answer. What are we here for? To seek to further the kingdom of God, the reign of God on the earth. Each of us is called is to extend to that reign. Uh, so, in conclusion and summary, each of these spheres, the family and the state and the church, has its own designated, unique responsibilities, <clears throat> not given to other spheres. It shouldn't try to lord it over other spheres or arrogate to itself responsibilities of other spheres. Ideally, these spheres should work together. Uh, not totally independent, yet having their own unique callings. It's amazing how church-centered some people are. You ever notice that some churches think that if something is not happening in their church or denomination, it's not happening? Just weird. Some are so family-centered, they don't care about the church or about culture. They don't care about influencing culture. Sadly, we already know the problem of those who are politically-centered. They want bigger and more effective politics in a bigger state. All of those are wrong. One way to put this, and a theologian friend of mine said it so beautifully and so well, it would be very helpful to revive the biblical doctrine of governments. Not government. You know, often our vocabulary betrays us. Today, whenever you hear the expression, well, what is the government doing? We think of Westminster, or in our country, Washington, D.C., but actually, in biblical terms, if not language, there are all sorts of governments. There's family government and church government. And for that matter, there is a government in the arts, or there should be. There's educational government and technological government. And then, of course, one among many is political or civil government. But in the Bible, the most important government of all under God's government is self-government. 
And do you realize the more we govern ourselves and discipline ourselves, the less there will be need for the exercise of external governments? So that, in a nutshell, is sphere sovereignty. I hope that I've at least explained it enough to provoke some questions or get you thinking now maybe some paths in which you haven't thought before. Any questions or comments?